We've all run into this scenario as a parent or aunt or uncle or a grandparent where we're correcting the behavior of a child and we just kind of have to bring it down to telling them, say you're sorry. And it feels so strange because we know they're not sorry. But yet at the same time, they need to say they're sorry, even if they don't feel sorry. We want to cultivate the virtue of feeling remorse and acting on it. What does I'm sorry mean? It means I feel bad. I wish I hadn't done that. In the course of wanting to cultivate the virtue of remorse and seeking forgiveness, we might have the process of having to cultivate the practice, the habit, the duty. Say you're sorry, and by the way, you should feel sorry. We should be expecting ourselves or others to do what's right, even when we don't feel like it, necessarily. But the goal is for God to change the heart through relationship with Him, obeying as an act of love toward God and others. I mentioned last week, this is called a, a, a biblical virtue ethic. An ethic, how what, what we do as a course of what is right and wrong but hopefully and slowly and more and more doing it out of the virtue that God is cultivating in our hearts. This is really, I think, the best way to approach the Sermon on the Mount. We will see a lot of do's and don'ts over the course of these passages. Sometimes it's best uh, Jesus preaching this message and, and what I believe is Matthew um, taking and organizing Jesus' teachings on this mount as he is preaching to the crowds and Matthew organizing these teachings in a way that is understandable and even memorable. And I won't go into all of that. But we learn a lot about the point that Jesus is getting to by his conclusion of the whole sermon. And the point that he is getting to is This is how you will experience a life that flourishes rather than a life that is destroyed. A life that lasts rather than a life that is swept away. A life that comes to nothing. And he concludes the Sermon on the Mount saying, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. It's easy to to brush off the blessings, these beatitudes that we are in, that really Jesus is introducing his message with. It's easy for us to brush them off as just talking about eternal reward. 
But Jesus' teachings close with the very real-world illustration of blessing, success, or failure. Having your house stand or having your house fall. And a person's flourishing or devastation is illustrated by what would be understood by anyone. A house that stands or a house that falls. Think of the Beatitudes that we are in here as Jesus is starting his message on biblical virtue ethics. And he starts it with this. Before you listen to my teachings on the ethical standards of God's kingdom, let me say this. First, while my teachings are going to change your life, I am about changing you into something new from the inside out. So that's kind of look, a look at the, from up high at the whole forest of Jesus' message. We look at, at, at his, we've looked at his conclusion and how his introduction is starting in that direction. This is how you have a flourishing life. This is how you have a life that stands rather than falls in his conclusion. Now let's come back as we've looked at the forest back into the trees of Matthew 5 verses 11 through 16. This morning we look to redeeming the Christian's unjust suffering. Redeeming the Christian's unjust suffering. Ever had a teacher that says, now class, there are no stupid questions. And then you ask one. Or you make a comment. I remember being in a philosophy class and uh, I was sitting next to my roommate, my freshman roommate, Russ, and I just tried to throw something out there that was maybe going to make the professor like me or, or just trying to like figure out what, what direction this professor is going in. And I make this, this comment, and the professor, I think he just kind of looks at me and just like, what? Or, you know, like, no, that's not it at all. And my friend Russ sitting next to me, he, he uh, makes this motion with his hand. He goes, like a plane just crashing into his desk. I got shot down. It doesn't exactly encourage interaction with a teacher or a professor when you get shot down, right? You know, they when they stop and they have to say, you know, something like, "Let me, uh, let me reiterate what I said." There are no stupid questions, but of course, there are stupid people that might ask them. That's no, my professor didn't say that. We face a temptation when we seek to represent Christ of feeling like we got shot down or, or when we do get shot down by that person. We face a temptation of basically saying, fine, I won't say anything. Fine, I'll just keep to myself. Fine, I just won't hang out with you. I just won't talk to you. That's where Jesus is going. And why it is at the the tail end of the Beatitudes, when he talks about blessed are you when those who persecute you for righteousness sake 
for theirs, I'm sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's been where he's going with all of this. And then he elaborates on it in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice that Jesus turns this statement in verse 11. He's still going with the blessing. The, the, full, the flourishing life belongs to those who, but now he turns to a different pronoun, you. We're told at the beginning of this chapter that his disciples, the crowd gathers, and his disciples specifically sit at his feet. And I believe that he's turned his attention now to them. Blessed are you. Then he continues on. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What would be the temptation for those who are being persecuted by those around them? To lay low. To not seek to make any impact. Say, fine, I'm going to take my shaker and go home. Continues on, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does light have in common with salt? They are both defined by their intended impact. Salt isn't salt if it's not salty. We're not talking about, you know, being salty, you know, ornery. Light is not light if it doesn't shine. I want you to see first of all here from, as our title says, let Jesus redeem your unjust suffering. Let Jesus redeem your unjust suffering. As the Harvest family, we value what's called expositive preaching, all right? And the, the, the easiest definition of that is to expose the text. I don't, it doesn't mean exposing you. I've heard people come up to me before and said, like, you must be reading my mail, uh, you know, because the, because the passage just laid the person open. But expositive preaching is about exposing the text. I like what Mark Dever said. He said that this type of preaching, expositive preaching, isn't defined by how you preach. It's defined by how you prepare. How the preacher prepares. Typically, that, that means that preparation begins where we left off. It's usually like, okay, we're here in Matthew. We're going to continue in Matthew. There's a... There's a, um, a 
really uh, helpful aspect of that because I don't know if I would ever preach on unjust suffering of the Christian if we weren't here in Matthew. We're getting to understand Jesus as Matthew um, lays out his life by moving uh, through the book of Matthew. And my preparation is all about seeking to let the point of the text be the point of the sermon. And this gets into a lot of context. What, what's around the, the passage we're looking at here? Where is he going with this? As we've already talked about with Jesus' conclusion of his message. And this involves taking, like I said, the context in mind. So verse 11, as I mentioned, flow is, flows out of the other Beatitudes. Jesus shaping, talking about the shaping that he desires to do of the heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's as if to say, the merciful are those who withhold the payback that others deserve. The pure in heart are those who, are, who aren't bitter about the payback that others deserve. The peacemakers are those who are actively trying to keep peace with those who are aggressive toward them. And those who are persecuted are those who are getting harassed because of their faith. This is, this is the slope of Jesus' introduction to getting to this point of the, the scenario Jesus' followers would face and will face and have faced since he walked this earth being reviled which means having insults heaped upon them, having all kinds of evil speaking against us falsely because of your following Jesus. And what is the response? What is the kingdom response? Rejoice. This is a state of happiness. Be glad. This means to be exceedingly joyful. Overjoyed. And why is this? The assurance that Jesus gives is it's only a sign of greater reward. When he talks about this reward being in heaven, it's kind of like how the kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. It's our reward with God. It's not we think of in heaven and we think of the afterlife. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven being here, the kingdom of God being here. Your reward is with God here and now. It is a closer walk with him, a closer intimacy with him, possibly flowing out of a need to be reassured by him. And even an identification with God's prophets that spoke for him and experienced the same. You know, there was an absolutely obnoxious movie and TV show, uh, Pee Wee Herman. And uh, it, it was in, well, intentionally obnoxious, you know, for adults especially. But, you know, he used to say something if somebody insulted him. Maybe you remember, he, he said something. He said, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Well, more often than not, for us as believers, and I know this is cheesy, our thoughts 
should be, your hard heart might be rubber, but I'm glue. Whatever I say might bounce off of you, but it means greater reward for me. Sorry, I I wasn't going to try to make that rhyme. How do we let Jesus redeem our unjust suffering? If you catch flack for standing for what is right or trying to turn a conversation to what's eternal, let it be a reminder to you of eternal blessing, of the fact that God has said, I'm here with you. Don't stop. If you're insulted to your face or slandered behind your back because of a visible walk with Christ, you can rejoice because your your reward is God himself. And they cannot take that from you. That's how Romans 8 concludes. What shall we say then? Can, Can, you know, we face suffering all day long. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? No. In fact, it reminds us that we are more than conquerors. One day we will be free from the dangers of loving him in this world because we will be with him forever. And this has been the experience of God's prophets and people that came before Christ. And it is the normal experience ever since then, of those who have followed Christ. Rather than letting people's response define how you speak and, and, and behave, let Jesus define your influence on others. This is what he reminds them of. He reminds them, I have given you purpose. I have given you direction. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I don't think that Jesus is giving a chemistry lesson here. Okay? I don't think, I I don't feel a need to go into like all the wonderful things that salt does and, and stuff. The very purpose of salt is to be salty, to influence, to seek, to have an an impact on that which it's added to. And if it doesn't, what good is it? Kenneth Wiest says this, if the salt loses its pungency, I like that, to have pungency, I had to look that up, it means to have an intense flavor. If it loses its flavor, if it becomes tasteless, if it's lost its taste, salt that's not salty is useless. It might as well be gravel, is basically what Jesus is saying. Kenneth Wiest also says, for not even one thing is it of use for any longer, except to having having been thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. And I believe that Jesus is illustrating the command to rejoice in suffering rather than shrinking back and becoming silent. 
For Christ's disciple to become silent means losing our purpose in this world. And we can actually see this in Paul's request of the Colossians. He writes to them in Colossians 4, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Many tells them, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's not necessarily saying something sharp that Jesus is talking about here. I think by Paul's standard here, it's about being gracious. It's about being forgiving. It's about letting something roll off your back and still being kind. But notice uh, what Paul asks. Pray that I may make it clear. To be clear is to be kind. To be clear about what sin is. To be clear about God's love. To be clear about our love for others is to be kind. What would you do if you salted your food <clears throat> with a white powder coming out of the shaker, but you couldn't taste it? I'm not, guys, I'm not talking about the salt substitutes that uh, some of you end up having to use. You know, if you were dad, you'd still use it. You'd take the knife and put it next to the to the salt shaker and you say, look, assault with a deadly weapon. Right? But if you, if you wanted to salt your food with something, you'd go over to the, to the garbage can, you'd open that shaker up and you'd be like, okay, what good is that? Because if it's not salty, if it's not seasoning, what good is it? And, and Jesus is saying, amidst persecution, don't lose your purpose for being here. Don't lose your purpose for being in that relationship to show grace, to show kindness, to love that person, no matter how it is that they're treating you. Why has God put you in your workplace? Why has God allowed you to be the only follower of Christ in your family? To be an influence for him. To be an influence. How do we let Jesus define our influence with others? He tells us that we are salt. Own it. Own it. He should be what people taste. What season all of our interactions. Well, this is what Jesus would say. This is what Jesus said about that. Why do I love you? Why do I keep talking to you? Why do I care about you? Because my Savior cares about you. Why do I apologize for what I just said? Because I'm a person that lives on forgiveness anyways. So I'm not embarrassed to ask for it. Why do I act the way that I do? Why do I live the way that I do? Because I've got a Lord who's living. And I try to follow him still.
Lastly here, I want you to see, let Jesus shine through your works of love. He goes on and says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You've probably seen images and such of, of the, the uh, first century oil lamps, very small, just containing a little bit of, of uh, oil in them with a, a little uh, uh, flame. First of all, you, you wouldn't want a big flame in a house, right? But, but it, they wanted to get the best use of that oil, the best use of that lamp. They weren't just going to go and set it under some. Obviously, that's ridiculous. Uh, when I was talking with Pastor Jeff about this, he says, well, I guess if you set it under something flammable, that's going to make a bigger light in the house. But it's a waste to light it and then be like, oh, I'm just going to go put it over here in this cabinet. No, obviously, they're, they're going to set it up high. A lot of times they might have a shelf built into the wall that they could light the lamp and set it up on the shelf so that it could shine light in the room. And this illustration that Jesus gives doesn't need any chemistry disclaimers either. What does light have in common with salt? Both are defined by their intended impact. Why do we call it lighting a lamp? Because the whole purpose of the lamp is to give light. Why light a lamp and cover it? You might as well not light it in the first place. One writer says, A disciple of the kingdom who does not live like a disciple of the kingdom is worth about as much as tasteless salt or invisible light. Like a city on a hill... We will be seen by others, and we might as well accept it. What will they see? What do they see in you? God's purpose, God's people has always been, they have always been considered the light of the world. Won't go into that with the Jewish people, but, but this is something that resonated even with the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament, that they were to be a light to the nations. And Jesus embodied this light that came into the world. And his disciples, as his followers, we take up the same role as lights in the world, helping the world to see what they desperately need to see. I appreciate, you know, I, I follow the KISS method of preaching, keeping it simple. And I'm the stupid one, you know, so I need to do that. Uh, making a point, illustrate the point, apply the point. Jesus' point here, he's, he's doing the same. His point here is expect persecution if you're following me. In fact, rejoice in it. And then he's illustrating that point with salt and light that are meant to have an impact, or else they aren't salt or light. And his application is this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we let Jesus shine through our works of love? 
I, I, was, I was just ministered by reading this morning from Psalm 141. When the psalmist says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. In other words, Lord, help me not say something stupid here. Help me not to say something that brings dishonor to you. To have that thought in that relationship. You know, guys, this is like every conversation with my siblings. Do not let my heart cling, incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let my, me not eat of their delicacies. Then I love what he says in verse 8 of Psalm 141. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. We are light, we are salt by keeping our eyes on the one that we are to represent. We're going to see lots of examples of the good works that Jesus tells us to be doing so that others might see and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I think you're going to see some things in these good works that you can be encouraged by. He's going to talk very soon in chapter 6 about God's standard of holiness. Murder is not your standard of right relationship in following Christ. You might have a coworker or a friend or a family member that's like, well, it's not like you murdered them. But you might be like, yeah, but I shouldn't have spoken that way about them. I shouldn't have talked about hating them. Because you're living by a different standard. And we'll see that Jesus gives us that standard. Your, um, your co-worker might say, or your neighbor might say, man, did you see what Alice is wearing today? And your response should be different. I would bet your response is different. If you're, if you're following Christ, I would bet that you would feel a conviction there. to be like, man, I try not to disrespect my wife. Or disrespect Alice. By looking her over. Why is that? Because God has worked in you a different standard. Just like we'll see in chapter 6. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, this is God's standard. That lust is unfaithfulness. You're already, I believe, working by some of these standards of Christ. And being a light through it without even knowing it. Or maybe your family member wants to hear from you, man, if it makes you happy, I think you should just get a divorce. Or your neighbor asks, if you two are having so much difficulty in your marriage, why not cut ties? But your standard on marriage and divorce has been given to you by God. And Jesus is going to lay out these good works in chapter 6. He's going to talk about God's standard of divorce. 
And I bet you're already living some of those. And I bet it's already different than your coworker or your family member that doesn't know the Lord. And you're being a light to them by how God has already changed your standard of the kingdom. These are a lot of the good works that Jesus is saying. Let your light shine as they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Peter wrote to others who were experiencing persecution because of their good works. And he writes in 1 Peter 3.16, Having a good conscience so, so that when you are slandered by those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Or he says in 4.4, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This is not unusual for us to stick out like a sore thumb because God has made us different. God has given us a different standard. And when we, when we don't live by that standard, when we don't speak by that standard, the Holy Spirit says, hey, that's not you. But guess what we're not supposed to do? Cover our light or stop seeking to make an impact. I want to point something out here before we conclude. A little statement on the end of this that as, as followers of Christ, we kind of we miss this because we understand that God is our Father. But Jesus makes a statement, and Jesus is very pretty revolutionary in confirming this as the Messiah when he's talking about that they might glorify God, your Father. He's going to say pretty soon, teaching on prayer, beginning with our Father who art in heaven. This is kind of like the opposite of a dig here in what Jesus is saying. Speaking to them as, speaking of God as his disciples' father. This is what he came to do. He came to put us in a father relationship with God. Who he is walking with us. He is counseling us. He is comforting us. He is there reminding us that our suffering has purpose. That we are there to be a light. That we are there to shine. Even if we're shining like a sore thumb to others. Is God your father? If you have received Christ as your savior. Recognizing that your sins have been laid. They were laid on Christ and paid for on the cross. And you have asked God to forgive you based on the work of Christ on the cross. Recognizing that when Christ rose from the dead, he purchased that forgiveness. It was evidence of that purchase. And trusting Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you as his child. And God is your Father. That's how it works. But in conclusion, in this passage, I want to remind us, what is Jesus' only command in all of this? What is Jesus' only command through all of this that he tells us about suffering and it revealing our purpose of being salt and of being a light? And don't shy, shy away from those purposes that God has given you. In the midst of suffering, he gives two words of command. Rejoice and be glad. 
Rejoice and be glad. It made me think of a song from from, uh, quite a while ago. And uh, maybe you're familiar with the old a cappella group, Glad. They had a song that was pretty easy to think of in this moment. It's called Be Glad. And it goes like this. In these days of confused situations, in these nights of restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse, this was written like 30 years ago. It hadn't gotten better. From the grave of the innocent Adam, speaking of Christ, comes a song bringing joy to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid in full. Be ye glad. Oh, be glad. Be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. So like lights on the rim of the water, giving hope in the storm sea of night, be a refuge amidst the slaughter of those fugitives in their flight. For you are timeless and part of a puzzle. You are winsome and young as a lad, and there is no disease or no struggle that can pull you from God. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. That is what we are to rejoice in. That nothing can separate us from our Father. Even if it's difficult to be salt and light. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that even as we're convicted by the times that we have shrunk away from speaking for you, from living for you, amidst pressure, amidst discomfort, I pray, Lord God, that we can be encouraged as your children by how you have made us to live differently. How you've made us to think differently. How you've already, through your Holy Spirit, given us a different standard from those around us. Lord, it's not comfortable to be different. But it can be reassuring. Lord, let our eyes be on you. Let us look to you for our assurance. Let us look to you for our comfort. Let it be a great comfort to know that amidst a world that more and more doesn't want to hear what you have to say, that you want to be glorified even still. And that we can glorify you as we follow you amidst it. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.